Hi, I'm Chatu, and welcome to the Slate Plus episode for the latest season of Dakota Ring. Today, I'll be chatting with Dakota Ring host Willa Paskin about the making of the season. And later, we'll hear more from the interview Willa did with producer and screenwriter Damon Lindelof about storytelling. But first, let's chat with Willa. Hey there, Willa. Hi, how are you? Good. Congratulations on the season. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So one thing that seems a little bit different about this season is that there aren't that many character-driven episodes. Like It's a little bit more thematic. Was that on purpose or was there anything <laughs> new that you were trying with this season? Ciao. I think you know by now it's just really catch as catch can. Uh, no. <laughs> the one thing that I wanted to do is I had felt like last season we'd actually done a lot of shows set in the 80s. Mm, particularly mm -hmm. like Tasteless Jokes and Custer's Revenge, which are literally both set in 1982. And like, obviously the show is a history show in a lot of ways, but it's not really also. <laughs> so um, yeah. I just wanted to bring it, the timeline up. So I was like, I don't want to do anything that's old. Like, mm, yeah, it, could, it needs to be old enough for there to be something interesting to say about it. And But I, I wanted to sort of get away from like that period of time and bring it up into the 2000s. So that was like my one agenda. As for the character stuff, I mean, that's just, that's that just who, who could say how these, you know, you just get these ideas and you're like, that one will work. So, yeah. 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 So let's dive into the season. Um, the first episode that aired was Razor Blades. Um, I'm curious about how this episode came out. Did you remember when the Onion story came out? Did that like stick in your, your mind? I definitely, I don't know that I remember when the Onion story came out, but I am definitely very familiar with that headline and it makes me laugh every time I see it or come across it. And I think literally what happened is someone tweeted about it in some context mm -hmm. and I just thought oh I wonder like what was going on <laughs> when that happened and then I must yeah. have started googling around it and then you know these things just open up or they don't and so that one opened up nicely and yeah also the I mean the other thing is that we you know Ben Fresh who is the longtime producer of this show left this season um to go do new and exciting other things uh, mm -hmm. but I was cognizant of that and so I also was pretty cognizant of trying to pick topics that I thought felt like concise. Do you know what I mean? Mm, um, storytelling yeah. being like the big exception there. So razor blades, it felt like a topic. Do you know what I mean? That like you could literally yeah. like get your whole hands around. A little bit more focused. Yeah. I was trying to not be as like la-di-da, big idea and just be like, let's, let's do some good, solid, down the middle stories. Yeah. Reporting. Yeah. I mean, along with the storytellers episode, this one is a little bit more like about advertising and how that yeah, sort of yeah, like that's infiltrates. Was that something that you expected when you first went into the Razorblade stuff and or the storytellers episode too? I think a couple things. I think the Razorblade ones ended up being a lot about advertising because just the advertising audio is so good. It's like it was. Yeah. I love You it. know, and that's and that's just one of the ways that that's like the only way you hear from a company kind of. And it was also sort of difficult to get. I mean, Gillette changed owners after sort of all this happened. So I don't even know how helpful it would have been. And actually, unfortunately, I had really tried to reach all these razor blade scientists. And one of them actually got back to me like literally the day the episode was coming out. Uh. And he had such good stuff to say. Like he actually said that they have like a seven blader in development and they have for like years and we should be expecting it. And I was like, oh my God, I can't oh believe I didn't talk to you. If we ever run this one again, I'll make you speak to me. But also because of that, I think the ads just were really important to like hearing, you know, the way they were like the voice of the company. So, yeah, I mean, to me, that that is a story about capitalism, but it's not exactly a story about advertising. And then, yeah, yeah. storytelling. Similarly, I also don't really didn't think of as a story about advertising. I mean, I thought of that the story as like that's really like 10 episodes. I mean, you could go so many places and I scratched the surface right. of so little stuff. I when I went into that episode, 
I didn't want to go into it because I was like, this is too nebulous. And I had actually sort of convinced myself it was doable because I was going to be like, oh, I'm just going to focus on people who call themselves storytellers and try to extract sort of what do people who are using the term storyteller mean? Like, what are they trying to say? And I'll do it as like a little quest, like a mystery show (laughs) where I like bop around and talk to all these storytellers. But that's just a really hard structure. I think it can be really satisfying, but it actually just takes a lot of finesse. And it's just actually not something that I have a ton of experience doing. So it ended up turning into sort of the more history narrative, which I think is interesting. And But that ended up relying on advertising more. Like in my mm-hmm. envisioning of what the storytelling episode was going to be initially, it almost was going to just like not be historical at all. It was going to be sort of like what's happening right now with this trend and why is it happening now? And then it you know, it, it changed. So that's just a very long-winded way of saying I was not expecting both of them to be so heavily about advertising. Right. But, you know, everything's about capitalism anyway, so it all ends up being about selling anyway. So that very happens true. often with the show. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, we'll return to storytellers a little bit at the end, but let's keep going through this season. The second episode was about The Method, and that was with Isaac Butler, who wrote a book about The Method. I really liked the writing of this episode. Like, I feel that you and Isaac had a really good back and forth, but I actually talked to Isaac and he said that basically you had written it out in the script, like you had interviewed him first and then you wrote it out in this like back and forth between you two and that's how it was kind of cut together. Well, there were some places where like he was responding to a question and that is included. Yeah. But yes, yeah, I did just do one. That's, really that was really cool. I mean, I, I really like this, the structure of that. Like, were you imagining that that's how you were going to do it? I mean, it's, you know, like you haven't really done a yeah. hosting episode like that before. Right. Of. So the way that episode came about is that we have been thinking about the number of episodes we have to do for this year and trying to think of a ways to do ones that might be a, quote, lighter lift, um, which this episode didn't really end up being in certain ways. But the (laughs) thing about the method and Isaac's, I mean, Isaac obviously is like a great talker and very energetic and personable and speaks really well. And also just the topic's really interesting and also was sort of in the air, but also it lends itself so much to a podcast or any audio thing, just because there's actually so many clips of actors, you know, like you could imagine... Mark Kurlansky like wrote all those books like about cod or like about like you know those one topic yeah. books about yeah, like yeah, yeah. butter or whatever <laughs> like they're all really interesting I'm sure that person could do something similar but there's not that much audio about cod do you know what I mean they're not that much so <laughs> this was special in that way but the so the idea was that we'll start to integrate this into a thing that we can do which is do a one interview show really trick it out with a ton of clips and like maybe that will be a format that we can use going forward but yes it did turn out that sort of making that try to feel like a full decodering episode took a much more sort of finessing and writing than I was expecting and probably the answer would be that I Mm -hmm. should do less of that and we should just run an interview with some clips (laughs) I don't know Uh, we'll see it's a work in progress but yeah so so the reporting for that was obviously um, much easier because Isaac knows everything and I had read the book and I talked to him I mean I had read the book before so that we sort of could go through it chronologically and I I knew that I had like an animating question which is like what is the method and why do we think it's one Mm -hmm. thing now that it's not Um, which is not like the question of the book per se although it's obviously in there yeah so yeah Yes, I had like a real vision of like the opening and how it would go. And then it was just sort of making that happen. So if you have, if you guys have ideas for books, I should do that with again. <laughs> you should let me know. <laughs> okay, people can write in to yeah, do decodering at slate.com. Perfect. Okay, so let's talk about the sideways episode. This one I felt like you really followed like the data, right? Like this is about tracing wine trends and trying to figure out if this is true about what happened with Merlot. So did any of the results from the data, like did that surprise you in your research? How did that shape like the writing of the episode? 
Oh, yeah, totally. So I think this episode is actually it's like very contained, it's very precise, but I think it's like the cleanest version we've ever done of it, where it's just like, this is 30 minutes. It's very satisfying. It's very like, we asked a question, <laughs> we're going to answer it. Like, it's going to be a fun ride. Yes. Like, I think it's like a very um, good example of like that kind of thing, which we do. That one, yeah, totally surprised by all of it. I basically had asked on Twitter sort of at the beginning of the season if people had suggestions and this had come up. Actually, Laura Lippman, who's in the episode, had suggested it. Mm. And I looked into it and it seems like if you just like Google around, it's like, yeah, of course it changed Merlot. And there had also simultaneously, there was like this graph going around Twitter that's like made it seem really duh. And I was like, it's too simple. Like I can't do it. But then when that graph was going around, which someone shared it in Slate Slack and Jordan Weissman, who's a Slate writer on economic stuff, is also a wine guy. <laughs> and he just had a lot of interesting things to say about it, actually, from like his wine guy. So when he started <laughs> sort of talking about maybe it really didn't do that, or maybe it really just helped Pinot, I was like, oh, this is more interesting than I thought. And so I started talking to people. And then it got really interesting, actually, when I talked to Steve Cuellar. He's a professor at Sonoma State. I mean, the joke about this is like for something that gets talked about quite a bit, it's like very uh, unimportant, like the sideways effect. There's not like a ton of economists who have like, actually studied it. It sounded to me like the two people have done papers on it actually came out of classes they taught. Like a lot of their students and grad students had sort of been interesting in it to look at it as a way of looking at different kinds of problems. Mm. So that is to say there actually hasn't been that much like hard study about it. So when I actually spoke to him, the way that paper had been sort of limbed was like it didn't have that much of an effect basically. Like if you look at that paper's write-up, the Chardonnay detail is like not in the write-up. I only got that from talking to Steve. And so at that point, I actually was like, oh my God, this is amazing. What if this whole thing is, we only think the sideways effect is real, right? Mm -hmm. And as we talked about this in, on the phone call, like it's a thing that we think is real, isn't really real, but then had all these real world consequences because it actually changed how much people planted. And I actually think there's probably some truth to that, just in the way that I had occasion to think about this as storytelling too. You know, trends are interesting because there's tons of people who never know about a trend or they find out about a trend when other people think it's so over. So right. the people yeah. who are paying attention to like a sideways saying Merlot is whack, like there's still probably most Americans have no idea that's happening and are just continuing about their habits. And it's just sort of like these people that are really attuned to like the conversation and media, you know, like it's sort of like it's like a Twitter bubble before Twitter existed. So how big an effect did it really have? Certainly like, it was amplified because whatever effect it was having, it was having on the people that like we look at when we're thinking about trends. So I was like, great, that's an awesome episode if it's not real. But then as <laughs> I kept talking to people, I was like, oh no, like I think maybe we can explain this. So that one was just really, it was really clear in my mind. Mm -hmm. I think I wrote that episode in four days, which has never happened. I mean, it's never happened before. I mean, it took like, a, that's not true. I wrote, like I had gone through all the tape the day before. So it took like a week, but it will never happen again. But it was. How long does it usually take? Oh God. Oh, um, I don't know. Two weeks. Okay. Yeah. Two weeks and I don't like them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So the next episode was about Convoy. And you mentioned at the top of the episode that a listener had written in about asking about this topic. So how did this all come about that we eventually get to Evan Chung's piece? So two things happened at once was that we were trying to basically pick up an episode, sort of how we did with Hi-Fi Nation last year, just like air someone's mm -hmm. good episode um, because we needed to. <laughs> and then someone did write in asking about trucker culture and sort of like Southern culture 
at this, why there was like this craze. And Derek John, who's um, the head of narrative podcast at Slate and has worked with Evan and worked at Studio 360 when I think they aired this piece, was like, oh, I remember this story. So he went and found it and sent it to me and I listened to it and I was like, yeah, this is great. So Evan did like did a refresh on it, which was really awesome and helpful. But I mean, it was really there already. It's just like a great, crazy story. I had never, ever heard Convoy before that. I didn't know it existed. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Did you know it existed? I did not either. No, I did yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I, I feel like the episode just gave me everything that I needed to know. <laughs> Okay, let's dive in into the storytelling episode. So I really loved hearing from your dad in this episode. Oh, yeah. Was he uh, like part of the original idea when no, you were thinking about this? Or how did that happen? <laughs> so I've been thinking about this idea for a really long time. I'm really interested in it. And I am only more interested in it. And I think there's like 10,000 things you could do and say about this and 10,000 mm-hmm. ways to get into it. Um, right. And I had been sort of dying in a draft trying to figure out how to do it, how I sort of thought. But basically, I've been interested in it. And then a couple months ago, um, Neiman Labs ran a piece about this study done by these professors at the University of Cincinnati, and one in particular is named Brian Calfano, about the use of the term storyteller among TV news journalists and journalists. And basically, they scraped a bunch of Twitter profiles for people that were using the word storyteller in their bio, like 700 at a time. They did three times. And they found in those three instances that 80% of those people were actually in or had been in TV news or television. So it was like, obviously, very, it's like a buzzword, particularly in TV. Mm -hmm. And then they had additionally run a survey where they'd shown people like a local news story about a zoning ordinance, like a fight about a zoning ordinance. And then um, half of them had additionally been shown that the writer of this piece refers to themselves as a journalist on LinkedIn. And Mm -hmm. what they found is that overall, when the people who knew that the the journalists called themselves a storyteller, it was like slightly negative effect, not a ton, but slightly Mm -hmm. negative, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, probably like they shouldn't be using that word since why would you want anything to be slightly negative, but just slightly. But then they basically had a like, fill in your comments section, like literally a prompt that was like, what do you think? What is the what does the term storyteller make you think? Something to that effect. And yeah. people like went totally ham and <laughs> were like Pinocchio, fake news, liar, telling tales. And the thing that's interesting about that is though fake news showed up a lot, it was a bipartisan response. Like Democrats also don't like the word. Mm. So Brian, who is, does TV news himself, is sort of like this is maybe an in-group term and we don't need to be using it to the public right. in this way. But to me, I was like, this is such a great illustration. Like what is the power of this word that people are using it even though like people don't like it like yeah what is the kool-aid the storytelling kool-aid we drink so that sort of was like had always been my premise and then i was like and now we're gonna like go talk to a bunch of people about that but i was really in the weeds on it and then dan coist thank god came in and like started editing it for me and he was like you have this history here like let's look at that i mean that history that is in that episode is like uh very bare bones and there's like thousands of things like i know i left out and i'm sure there's thousands of things i have no idea about that like I left out mm-hmm. that might change it. But like, I mean, literally like from Joan Didion to like Yuval Harari, like there's just so right. many things that Jim Henson had a show called Storyteller that I think actually fit into the timeline that I outlined. But, you know, storytelling does have this creative connotation and that's like the engine that's driving so much of the use of this word. Like, even though it sort of makes you roll your eyes, it still seems creative. Right. And also, so whatever, I talked to a gajillion people and I really did actually like have an epiphany <laughs> while I was working on it that is like, not in the episode. I mean, it's in the episode, the content, but it's not in the episode as an epiphany, which is that I was talking to Seth Godin, who's a teacher and an entrepreneur, and he 
teaches marketing and we were having a sort of um, nicely combative a little bit back and forth. And um, he was like, you know, people who don't, who are skeptical of marketing are like, they hate it all except what works on them, you know? And like we had established earlier in the conversation that I'm the kind of person who likes to feel I'm smart because marketing doesn't work on me, even though that I know it does. And I was like, of course I don't care what kind of car I drive or whatever. And I, and I got <laughs> off that call and I was thinking like, oh, are there any companies that like I care about? Like, I really don't think there are. It reminded me of hydration. It's like how I definitely like got the message we should drink water, but I'm yeah. not like a, a devoted to any water brand, you know? I was like, is there some company? And then I was like, mm-hmm. I guess I like like HBO and FX. And I was like, oh my God, I totally only care about places that make stories. And I, the thing that I have bought is exactly like with hydration. <laughs> is like the story about the story. So like the pitch about the story, like it's this ancient thing yeah. that we do and our brains respond to it. And it's like so special and it's going to change the world. Like I totally buy that. I'm And I'm grossed out by the commercialization of it because I buy into that. Right. But the thing that was really interesting and that isn't in the episode is that like that is a trend too. Like that's the bigger trend actually. And I talked to... Francesca Paletta, the sociologist, and I talked to this other man, Peter Brooks, who's an English professor emeritus at Yale, but who's read, written some books about this. And it's like this real faith in personal stories in particular is a trend. We do not always feel this way. Like in the 70s, you know, mm-hmm. feminists were telling a lot of personal stories, and then there was like a big backlash against it, and they stopped. That was really revelatory mm-hmm. to me, <laughs> even though it's not in the episode. Um, so, yes, this is a really long-winded way of saying I had no idea my dad was going to be at the top of the episode <laughs> until it all fell apart and turned into something else. Uh, and then it was. And I think it's good in the sense that it's obviously something I feel skeptical about, but I really don't like the show to be mean. You know, there's lots of reasons you call yourself a storyteller. They're totally, like, valid, which is, like, also that, like, it gets you employed or whatever. Like, use any word you want. And so I just think that right. in the sense of sort of framing it with him and and then my kids at the end is it's just like I get it we're all just doing our best I don't know <laughs> and so one of the people that you spoke to and then we're going to hear from later is Damon Lindelof who's a screenwriter and producer and he made Lost and The Leftovers and Watchmen I'm curious about how you like framed your request to talk to him yeah thought- <laughs> right you're basically like do you're like did you email him nagging him and see if yes. he would talk to you <laughs> right I was really not wanting to do that because I like he makes really good TV shows I respect mm-hmm. him very much. I was like not trying to gotcha. I mean, this is a whole difficulty. It's with everyone. Everyone's a person. I right. like them all and respect them. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not trying to set them up. And the thing about Demon also is that I didn't belabor this, but when I saw him use the word, which I think I was working at New York Magazine at the time, and it was like in an interview, mm-hmm. I noticed it because it was newish to me. I don't remember. I'm not saying that I was like, oh, I love that word. But I don't know <laughs> that I had like the, the reaction that I have to it now, like genuinely. Do you know what I right. mean? Right. And also, I don't think he uses it anymore because words have life cycles. And that's sort of what I was kind of get at. You know, it's like I think so much of what happened is that people like him and people on storytellers and people who make stuff that we actually all like and do really think of as stories were sort of like using it and you still see filmmakers and directors use this stuff all the time they don't call themselves storytellers but they're like i really love to tell stories like it's just sort of the right yeah parlance and i think for a lot of the reasons i said which is it isn't pretentious and you do understand what it means and also it's inviting like 
artist is more pretentious and maybe it shouldn't be or which, but even if it's more mm. true you know like there's right. this connotation that it's like not esoteric it's like no this is for lots of people this is not some like elite thing so i emailed him and i just said i'm trying to figure this out but <laughs> he got it and he was he actually had listened to the show so he was familiar with what you're trying to get at yeah to me it is like an important point in the story and in the narrative because i think so much of the engine of what drives it as a trend is like is the good stuff that we do all like stories and that like stories by which I mean like fictional or features like something that people like really craft and care about and like put all this energy into but like those things like are really meaningful to us and he makes Mm -hmm. those stories and that's but that's part of what is pushing it it's like people want to be connected to that and it's also what makes it eye rolly right because it's like but don't you see the vast difference mm-hmm, mm-hmm. between that kind of story and whatever your crypto company's <laughs> product line is, you know, like that's right. the gulf we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the conversation is really interesting. And so we'll hear a little bit more of that later. Uh, okay. Last question. Do you have any hints about what to look forward to next season? Anything you're working on you can hint at? Uh <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah no i mean i think no i don't i don't know people should send me ideas okay that's a great plug again so dakota ring at slate.com and that's it for this season thank you willa thank you chow and thank you to everyone who signed up for slate plus and listens to dakota ring like truly it's awesome thank you (laughs) okay so now we have more of willa's interview with damon lundeloff so just to start can you tell me your name and what you do uh I feel like that's a trap. My, <laughs> my name is Damon Lindelof and I'm a storyteller. No, what, do you, what, a, yeah. you, what would my you name, say if I wasn't asking you for this episode? No, my name is Damon Lindelof and I'm a writer producer. Do you remember like when you first became aware of the word storyteller, like as a, a thing someone could call themselves? I remember that there was story time. And when I was in like kindergarten and first grade, but I think that like probably like my first cognitive understanding of of the word storyteller was that Jim Henson show. Do you know what, which one I'm talking I about? I don't, I don't, I don't. Yeah. I think it was just on for one season, maybe two seasons. And I think it was called Stor- The Storyteller. Okay. And it was, a, it was like an anthology series with like Jim Henson, like Muppets and William Hurt. Those are the two things that I remember about it. But I think it was called The Storyteller. Oh, cool. You know, it, that was the wraparound. Like The Storyteller was kind of like the Rod Serling to introduce like each one of these. They were fairy tales or like, you know, fables, et cetera, et cetera. You also in the email suggested that you had thought about VH1 storytelling. Oh, yes. That, that was the other like sort of like definitive sort of pop culture moment is like, okay, this is cool. Like as a big Springsteen fan, the tradition of musicians who don't just play their songs but like go on and on and on for like four or five minutes before they start playing the song and that show being really like, Oh, we're going to unpack with, it was a lot of that. So I do like storytelling in the, in the context of, uh, of music. So I think I said this to you when I emailed you too, but I remember, I don't know why I remember it. I mean, this would have been a long time ago now, but when I worked at Vulture, I remember reading something where you described yourself as a storyteller and whatever was going on, it was not something I had seen. I just think it was not like a thing that everyone did. And I'm just curious, like, do you remember when you started describing what you do and yourself in that way? I mean, there's a weird surreal quality to any writer 
who is suddenly like having to kind of describe how they see themselves beyond just I'm a writer. And what I would say is that I've always made a distinction from as long as I can remember and that I am much better in my opinion and in the opinion of others who know me verbally, like putting together the mechanics of what will eventually be a screenplay or a teleplay or the document that is used to basically generate television and movies. But I think that the, the talking process, you know, what we refer to as the writer's room, that's where I've always felt that I am best and where I, I am worst or where I am weakest is fingers on keyboards, blank page, you know, you just have to generate it. And so I think that for me, I think that there's a direct sort of synonym between telling and the verbal action of speaking, you know, storytelling, the oral tradition of before there was paper, there was the campfire, you know, and this is the story of who we are and where we came from and the gods and the stars and the sun. And, you know, before the Torah was on a scroll, it was an oral tradition that I find very romantic. And I think that when I was a kid, I loved to tell stories either like, this is the movie that I just saw. And let me, let me tell you the movie that I just saw in five minutes or 10 minutes, but also like, I'm a bit of a bullshit artist. And I think that when you call yourself a storyteller, it allows you a certain degree of like, people don't call you a liar anymore. Because <laughs> I'm sort of like, my wife will say this to me all the time. I'll tell a story. And she'll be like, I was there when that story took place. And that is not what happened. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm telling a story. Like, it's so much better this way than the way that it actually happened, which is like relatively mundane. And I think that people very often, they either cast themselves as the hero or or the goat in the story that they're telling. You're either the victim or you're the triumphant hero. And those are the archetypes that people like to hear in stories, where very often we're neither of those things in the experience that we have in our lives. And so when you recast a story as it's being told, you have to sort of choose what your role is in the story. Nobody wants to be Nick. Everybody wants to be fucking Gatsby. You know, like that is just the nature of the beast, I think. I kind of want to be Nick. Who wants to you be do? Gatsby? I don't want to be fucking Gatsby. It goes really well, bad. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. You're... Maybe I don't want to be Nick, but I, I take your point. I take your yeah, point. I want to be Daisy. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. suck on that. Yeah. Um, so like, have you noticed that it's everywhere now, this word? Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, yes. I mean, it does feel like it's in the vernacular. Yeah. And like, have you noticed how people use it? Like, do you have a sense of that? I think that I don't want to use the word cheapened, but it's the closest that I can come to answering your question where it's sort of like everybody's a storyteller now. <laughs> I And I think it goes kind of like part and parcel with the sort of idea of like, if you're an influencer on TikTok, you're a storyteller. And the fact of the matter is, is I'm not disparaging TikTok. I'm too old for TikTok. Um, my son would be mortified if he saw me watching TikTok, but yeah. I- or if I had it on my phone, but I watch it over his shoulder. And also like I regularly visit sort of like aggregator nerd websites that link to TikTok videos. And I'm like, oh, okay, there's some legitimate craft here. Like when I say cheapened, I'm not, I'm not saying they're not storytellers, but I do think that the sort of idea of like 
if you asked someone on the street in 1985, who are the great storytellers, you know, someone would have had to stop and think, and they would have given you like five names in our common vernacular that we could all sort of agree uh, were great storytellers. You ask that question now, every person you stop, depending on their age and their sphere of influence is going to give you five different names because the word storyteller is applicable to so many different kinds of stories. So, yeah, I mean, again, I'm not, this is not me saying like, oh, it's a precious commodity that has now been diluted, but I agree with your central premise that it is everywhere. And therefore it's a little less special. So I'm going to like cards out. So one of the things that I'm really interested in about this is it feels like this idea of stories, right? There's like thing humans do around the campfire. We've had them for a long time. And then it struck me that there was some sort of like, I think it started actually in the the 80s and 90s, like a kind of dawning realization that stories are so potent that we can use them to sell stuff. Mm -hmm. And so you start to see it as it is now, which is basically, I think almost the place you see the word the most is in a marketing We're a tech company. We have a story to tell. Like everyone, you know, like people on LinkedIn who are using their term storyteller to say they like can write content for you, like Mm -hmm. basically just to sell stuff. And I don't want to be like precious about it because like, it's just a word, but something about that seems like pretty enervated to me. And I'm, so I'm trying to like, like to me, there is something about a story that still like is actually like a narrative. Hope maybe it's fictive. And it's like, that's really not what people are talking about. I know exactly what you mean. And I I completely and totally buy into your central thesis, pun intended. I also sort of feel like the proto story, the Ur story, or the original storytellers to get back to this sort of idea of like, what is the origin of storytelling? You know, from an anthropological standpoint, and this isn't me wanting to like get into it, but like for someone who's been very curious about religion and spirituality, not in the context of theism or like me having a greater understanding of why am I here? What is the meaning of life? What happens when I die? Obviously, those are ideas that keep kind of cropping up in the stories that I am drawn to as a consumer and as a progenitor. But most importantly, the narrative construct of religion itself, which is it started as a thing that was meant to explain the unexplained. Why does the sun rise? Why do the crops die? Why is it raining so much? Why did my baby pass away and my other baby thrive? Like, let's assign purpose to this by creating gods that have motivations and that they can be influenced based on my behavior as a human. If I make sacrifice or if I pray and I'll be punished if I don't follow the sort of like these systems of societal norms that long before, you know, like a rule of law comes along, these sort of proto-religions basically define the way that you're supposed to behave. And how are those things presented to individuals, not on a parchment nailed to a tree, but as stories. And so to your larger point of like, what are these stories trying to sell us? They're trying to sell us a code of behavior. And I think that in addition to the monetization, commercialization inherent in what you just said, there's also propaganda, which is stories are basically being being used to convince us of truths 
uh, in order to affect our beliefs and our behavior. And wow, what a profound time to be alive right now in terms of like where we put our trust. You know, the idea that someone who's working at the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal says, I'm working on a story. And that idea is like, yeah, but there's an expectation that your story is factual. And, you know, trust in the MSM has never been lower. And I think maybe the proliferation of the term is that people feel like everything is storytelling now. Everything is, to your point, is trying to change my mind about something in order to give you, the storyteller, some added benefit. Well, I think there's actually a real conflict there because one of the pieces that made me think I could sort of do this was this professor in Cincinnati who actually also is on TV news. And he did a survey where they asked people about the use of the word storyteller in TV news specifically. Like when CNN is like, we're the best storytellers. And like 80% of people on a bipartisan basis were like, hate it in this context, mm. despise. And obviously like TV reporters themselves are using, it's like an in-group term, you know, but it's just like not conveying what they want it to convey because exactly as you say, like there's, there's still this association with story as like being fictive. So it's like, you know, when, when a New York Times reporter says I'm working on a story, like that's sort of like just how journalists talk to each other and actually saying it that way doesn't mean there's going to be any narrative element. It could be like, you know, a synopsis of a board meeting that was like extreme, but that would count as a story. And you hear that also like some of this content farm tech, like, you know, they'll be like, we need storytellers, we need stories, but it's just like a random piece of content. Yes, exactly. That has no narrative at all. So like in that yeah. way, there's just been some sort of like slippage and creep but you're right that there is this piece of it that everyone's like, well, it makes me think you're going to tell me like a good yarn of some kind or another. Or to, as you boi say, to boil it down to, I, you know, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but like what I'm hearing you say is like storytelling is synonymous now with what are you trying to sell me? Yeah. Um, and sell doesn't necessarily mean that there's a commercial transaction. It just means that like, as a result of me hearing your story, there's a transaction. You expect something in return for it. And that's the fundamental reality. Do you find that any of the stuff that we're talking about makes you not want to call yourself a storyteller? Yes. Because it seems it's like a joke in a Danny McBride show now <laughs> where it's like, and now it is time to bring out our storyteller. And it's some dude with like long hair and a beard with like baggy pants he's got like a rain stick. It, it evokes kind of like that kind of a thing. No, but to me, like, that's like, I still have such a soft spot for that version. Like, where you I'm do? just like, you're like, are you going to tell me about elves? And like, you're going to just right. like, I'm like, great, be like that. I'm like, like, it's like, it's a joke. Like the guy who comes out is like so slick. You know what I mean? Like yes. the slickest guy in the world and he brings out his right. PowerPoint and he's like, oh, that's more interesting. Yeah. He's in a suit, but it, it does yeah, like feel whatever. just like that to me is like, that's what it conjures for me. But you, did you think that before this conversation, like, had you already been giving you the heebie-jeebies or not? Um. It didn't give me the heebie-jeebies, but it's sort of like when you first sort of reached out and was like, I have a theory. And then I tried to make the VH1 joke. My feeling about it was sort of like that the milk has curdled on the word storyteller. That was my general sense where it's sort of like, I, I just said Danny McBride, but it's sort of more like you could do an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry's at a dinner party and he's introduced to the person sitting next to him and, and he says, this person is a storyteller. And then Larry basically just like goes to town on that individual. And you kind of go like, oh, that's funny. I'm the butt of the joke. now. I don't think I would self-identify as a storyteller now, even yeah. if it's something, again, 
it's not that the phrase has been ruined. It's just that I always meant it as storytelling is something that happens on like kind of an intimate level verbally, like the talking process of storytelling it yeah. is, is not writing an episode of television. I guess it is technically storytelling, but different words have like sort of taken on different contexts. That's my two cents for whatever it's worth. Okay, that's it for this season. Thanks again for being a Slate Plus member, and we'll be back next season. 